You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. I'm your host, Trent Fleskins. As always, this week is a super special episode. It's the first of a series of episodes on sustainable landscaping. It's a green theme. And we've got Chris Ferreira in from The Forever Project, focusing mainly in that southwest corner of the Perth metro area, the Frio area, which Mm. I guess we'd all guess you'd come from. Chris, thanks for coming in, mate. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we're going to start with an intro to sustainable Mm. landscaping and broader development. Yeah. We've spent so much time chatting about tax and law and financing and air cons and uh, building and apartment buildings. But to really round out these conversations, something that a lot of our listeners have been asking for for quite a while now, it's taken me this long to find (laughs) you, is how do we do this in a way that's energy efficient and green? And Mm. and so we're going to start with this episode talking about the intro. Yep. We're then going to talk about in a future episode some top tips mm-hmm. and the future as well. So okay. let's crack down with the this intro. What is sustainable mm. landscaping, if I can use it as that term? Would mm. you coin it in a different way? And, and what are we covering here in terms yeah. of the ideas? The word sustainable gets bandied around and obviously it can not necessarily have a profound meaning. But from my perspective, sustainable landscaping is asking the most important question, which is, is my landscaping in alignment with where I live? Now, by I'll backtrack on that a bit and say, Perth is one of the toughest environments on the planet to live. And I'll explain three reasons why. Well, early how- settlers hated the place. <sighs> they did. They, they said did. this place is barren. They did. And <laughs> and we, we and that set up this um, hostility towards nature, which a lot of people still have. So you think about Perth, we are the fastest drying part of the world's driest continent the fastest drying part of the world's driest continent. Mm. And the only reason we haven't reached uh, ground zero like Cape Town did, where they literally ran out of water, (laughs) is that we're rich. And we were rich at a time when we had the technology to do mass-scale desalination. If we didn't have that and we didn't have $1.5 billion to throw at the problem, we would be seriously in caca in this part of the world because we are fast running out of water. So number one is... We have to accept that we we are running out of water. We don't have large amounts of water. It's an illusion that we have plenty of water. We are making water, and that's what's kept us afloat, and we are drawing it from the old ancient rainwater tanks which we have, which are the aquifers. The Yarragadee. That's it, indeed. And are we making? Can we just keep making water? I mean, it's not like well, the ocean's running out. No, no, there's not. But I guess from a sustainability, and that's where I, I touched on sustainability. If we're serious about sustainability, you have to pretty much say that it isn't sustainable desalination. It uses massive amounts of power massive amounts of power the biggest power consumer in wa and we have some huge industries in Mm. wa so we know about big energy consumption the biggest consumer of energy in wa is the water corporation because they have to make pumping that's right they have to make water then they have to pump water and water's heavy you carry nine liters of water it's nine kilos it's heavy stuff we have to pump it to dams then we have to pump it out to people's homes and we have to pump their sewage then we have to pump water from the groundwater so water is precious and extraordinarily expensive to make do you think that there's not and we've covered this i guess in the future episodes Mm. but do you think there's not a a time where the marginal cost of electricity due to things like solar technology gets to a point where electricity... I've I've had other water experts talk to me off air saying, Mm. I think one day electricity will be next to zero cost. Yeah, that may... And look, I passionately hope we move in that direction. But 
if we look at this from a, I'm always keen to try and look at this from a philosophical perspective. If we just keep making more and more water, rather than tackling how much water we're actually using, it's a little bit like saying to an addict, I hear you have an, a, an addiction problem. I'm going to make your drugs cheaper. Here's your morphine. That's right. We're yeah. not actually solving the problem because getting back to my point, we're the fastest drying part of the world's driest continent and we have the worst soils in the world. In fact, anyone from another part of the world would say, you cannot call that crappy grey sand soil. That, mm. is, that is just an insult to decent soils around the world. And we are the third windiest city in the world. Mm. So unlike Chicago and Wellington, the two windiest cities, we have hot dry winds, desiccating, withering winds, and they can fan some of the biggest catastrophic fires the planet has ever seen. I'm painting a picture that this is not an easy place to live. Yeah, but we've somehow seemed to do well, it. Well, we have, but how we've done it, and this is where I'll get to the, to the landscaping, we've largely done it, particularly over the last 30 years, by saying, we'll just make bigger houses and we'll air condition our way out of any issues. Which is, again, from a sustainability point of view, we have to really be saying to ourselves, are we living within our means and are we really aligned with what it means to live in WA? So sustainable landscaping says we need to accept where we live, we need to accept the challenges, and we need to then design landscapes that fit within those constraints. Does that that mean less... Palm trees and ferns? Yeah, pretty much. When I see palm trees, I if I was a psychologist, I would say that's the equivalent of someone in denial. And as they say, denial is not a river in Egypt. Mm. So if you have got palms everywhere, you're kind of in your head subconsciously going, I'm in Bali. I'm not in Perth. I'm in Bali. It's a very cool thing to do in the 80s, though. Everyone well, loved their palms and their fronds. Yes, and, and, and if we look back at the 80s in terms of fashion, we all cringe a bit and we go, oh, my God, look what George Michael looked like and yeah. da-da-da. The, the point being that it is a fashion thing, but it was not linked in. So sustainability, as I said, is, is if we're serious about sustainability, it's about accepting where we are. And acceptance brings with it extraordinary opportunities to do something that is beautiful and feels better because it is aligned with what it means to be in this part of the world. Do you think that we've been heading in the right direction with regards to new land estates and uh, planning mm. policy around infill as well in terms of what's being mm. obligated by the uh, the councils as to what our new landscaping plans are because it's no yeah. longer with a lot of councils mm. that we can just do what we want. Yes, we have to have a right. plan. That's a great question. And the short answer is in terms of landscaping, it's fantastic. And um, we've moved in leaps and bounds and local government and Water Corporation, Department of Water have all done a very good job at saying we want water-wise landscapes and these are largely going to be using uh, native plants. So They're cheaper to buy as well a lot of yeah, the time. Yeah, they, they, they generally are. Because they're cheaper to grow. Generally, again, you can spend a lot of money on natives or you can spend a lot less. Generally speaking, if you put in a good native garden, it will be cheaper to set up and it will be cheaper to run. So a sustainable landscape is understanding we have crappy sand, we have a tough environment and water is precious and scarce. So the principles of sustainable landscaping, and we call these commandments. We think they're so important, we call them the 11th and the 12th commandment. Are you ready for them? Yeah, Yeah. hit me, he says. All right, the 11th commandment is thou shalt use the water and the nutrients where they fall. So in other words, in WA, if you don't get the water and the nutrients, whether that's fertilizer or compost, whatever you've added to feed your plants, if it doesn't go into the ground, what happens to it? It dies. It dies. And that water and nutrients runs off. So your plants are not getting a drink. And that 
solution, which is the water and the nutrients, it's fertilizer, it's dog poo, it's compost, whatever, runs into a drain that feeds into a bigger drain that gets fed with the detritus from the road, becomes a bigger and bigger toxic soup. And where yep. does that then get dumped? Out in the ocean, right? Yeah, or the Swan and Canning River. Yeah. Or Lake Joondalup or Lake Wanneroo, whatever it is. And so you now have the irony that we are fouling things that we love. Everyone loves the Swan River. Most lakes are beautiful. People like to walk around them, and yet they're becoming a toxic soup because we fail to get the water into the soil so our plants miss out. And we cause another problem. We just cause pollution with what should have been nutrients. That's the 11th that's, commandment. That's the 11th. And the 12th commandment is never leave the soil bare. So you'll still see old European gardeners and they scratch and they hoe and they till the soil. And that's that worked okay when you're in Europe with a mild climate and meters, meters of topsoil. Mm. But you come to Perth with the world's worst soil and a hot, dry, desiccating environment. That's that's a recipe for the landscape to be destroyed. Darren, yeah. Indeed. Does that mean therefore you're against irrigation? No, it means that I'm against flagrant wasting of water. We have to irrigate plants. We have to give them a drink. But if I was out with you in the desert and we only had a finite amount of water and you took the water and poured it all over your head because you were feeling, would that be a good use of that water? No, it wouldn't. No. no. And, that, and if you look at most irrigation systems with the hot, dry winds and low humidity, most of them spray water into the air, which is a little bit like the way we try and deal with pollutants at a heavy industry. We make a great big chimney and we disperse those pollutants. We want the wind to carry them so they don't Somewhere act. Else. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And that's how we irrigate. In other words, it's not trying to get the water down to the ground. It's just throwing it into the air. Watch how many misting systems. So you'll see those little black mm. Mm. spikes with a little blue or red or green lid. They should be banned. If I was Premier, the first thing I'd do is ban those. Whip the person who put them into production first and then ban them because 80% of that water is just, just evaporates, right? Yeah. And, and as I said, we are the fastest drying part of the world's driest continent. In what planet, what universe is that a sensible thing to do? So just a quick tip. I think a lot of people would uh, have a misconception here. Am I watering the plant better by watering the soil it is in mm. or watering the leaf? Man, you it? ask some great questions. We are much better watering the ground. Mm. And I often say... It's, it's not a satisfying thing for a lot no, of people because no, they want to see a wet leaf. That's right. right? And, and there was a just as a bit of an aside there was some some um, villages done you probably know nlv the um national lifestyle villages yes yeah so john wood uh, designed those and they're really cool and they have fantastic drip irrigation uh which is where the water is you can't see the irrigation down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and they found through their research the blokes were still going out in the and these are over 55 so the average age is say 60 70 and the blokes were watering their gardens and and they had nice uh, consultants within the these villages going guys you know we've got drip irrigation you don't need to be irrigating your plants and when they dug deeper they realized the main reason why the blokes were out watering they said we know we just want to get out of the house <laughs> <laughs> well it's probably and, part of their routine well, their lifestyle right. they've that's always right. done it right that's right and we say in our workshops just because you can see the water dripping off the leaves or the birds are having a a swim and a bath in that water doesn't mean the water is going to give your plants a drink it has to go into the soil so sustainable landscaping is about, this is the 13th commandment, your irrigation. So your question was, is irrigation bad? No, irrigation is essential, but it has to be fat drops of water close to the ground. Okay. Are you anti-grass? Okay. This is where I bring up one of my get out of jail fallback caveats. It's always the right plant in the right place for the right reasons. Okay. 
So lawn is the most extraordinary miracle plant if you have young family, kids who want to kick the footy, you've got a couple of staffies and they want to roll on the ground, you want to have a picnic. It is the greatest, yeah. most extra- Imagine any sport without lawn. It is, it's a well, you miracle. you have to look to Africa or the poor parts of South that's America. Right. And that's, that's right, that's right. Yeah, that's what you get. Okay, now where lawn isn't the right plant is on the verge. When was the last time you ever saw anyone on their iridescent steroidal green lawn? Using but, it. Yeah, yeah, having a picnic, kicking yeah. the football. It just is something that we've traditionally done. Well, it's presentation. Indeed. And again, there's a misconception that that is a good property. But when you think that might be 60,000 litres of water and fertiliser and mowing, we often say the only people that use that verge lawn are the bloke who mows it. And maybe if you're in a dodgier suburb, someone who drives and does circle work on it on a Friday night. It's just a complete It's a waste of space. That's right. People put it in, I guess. Normally, you would accustom a well-manicured grass verge to someone who has pride in their house and and then a verge or a council with money and you see a verge with no grass as an area that's probably not looked after. And when we do our workshops and I say the caveat, look, I and I will say I, and I say it sort of tongue in cheek, but when people ask questions about lawn, I will say, I will give you help with your lawn, but I will give you no help on how to manage your verge lawn. And they <laughs> kind of look at you and of course I can't, you know, but it's my point I'm trying to make is, we need to wean ourselves off that. And then I say, just because we're saying no lawn doesn't mean you have weeds or a car body out the front. Mm. You can have the most extraordinary, beautiful alternatives. And that goes back to your original point about local government and, and movement with, with well, landscape. They're all against this uh, heat islandization. That's effect, right. right? So they don't want paving. That's right. They don't want concrete. That's right. They're certainly happy with grass mm. and they're certainly happy for you to pay to manage it. But they're not really putting much money into making your verge other than a couple of arbitrary trees every couple of years that never seem to grow uh, into managing verges. They don't seem to have either the interest or the money. Okay, so so there's a few things. A lot of councils are changing strongly in the position so towards verge alternatives. So that are, generally speaking, water-wise, native low verges. So the Water Corp spends about $100,000 a year supporting local government to give money to residents to convert their verge into a water-wise alternative. Every council has a verge treatment policy now. Some councils where I am in Coburn, I've got three lots of $4,000 to convert three verges, $4,000 per property. Mm. So a lot of councils are aggressively moving in that direction. Mm. And with the whole impact, as you said, of heat island effect, etc., there's going to be more and more of a push to get rid of verge lawn. So what, put an what is the, the verge you want to see? What, okay. what does it look like to a lay person? Okay, so the verge I want to see is an explosion of color. So you've got a suite of low-growing native plants. You might put some succulents in there. You might have some things like uh, some creeping food plants in there as well. You might have some things on the lawn, uh, on the verge, things like sweet potatoes or potatoes. You might have everlastings. You might have a range of those different plants. We need to conform to what's called line of sight. So you need to make sure everything is below 70 centimetres height. But the verge I'm looking at into the future is a mini low-growing ecosystem mm. and it doesn't need to be mown doesn't need to be fertilized and it might be watered once a week maybe once a fortnight and it's managed i always say to people when you go to king's park and king's park is one of the great botanical gardens in the world and we get thousands of visitors per year that go there 
those beautiful gardens. They're manicured. They're manicured. Yeah, but this is this is the, th- the thing, Chris. I think that sounds to me like a fantastic future. Uh, but there's a couple of issues I think that I see in terms mm. of how that ends up. One, it's chaos in terms of most people like uniformity, and what you're suggesting is something that is. Um, is you know that beautiful chaos of different of differentiation, variation, and and things that people aren't used to, and that's fine. I think you can you can transition towards mm. that. But what happens when you have that is it needs to be managed, mm. right? And who's going to manage it? Because if if you don't have you know the good thing about grass is you can't really go you, you know you either look after grass or you don't, right? Mm. When you have the types of things you're suggesting to an extent especially things that are food plants, they, they can also... One of the worst things you see is a veggie patch that just never worked, mm. right? It looks pretty average. Mm. And when the council is not looking after your verge, especially you think about councils like Stirling. I thought, and it's, you, know, you drive through a lot of the suburbs in the city of Stirling. There is no management whatsoever mm. to the verge. And, and you just and you know Gosnells, Armadale, mm. City of Quinana. Mm. These guys put zero dollars every year and I can't imagine them having a budget to do so. Okay, so the verge, the verge is interesting. No council will manage verges, but they own it, and they won't. Yeah, you, that's and, true. And they'll come at you if you do something they don't like. Yeah, that is true, <laughs> but they just simply don't have the budgets yeah. to manage the verge. So lawn has been has always been seen as a simple default because the it's, devil, you know. Yeah, and it's relatively easy to manage. But again, when you throw into the mix, and I said right at the beginning, we are running out of water. Yeah, the cost. And there is not a civilization on the planet that can survive without good clean air, potable water, which is drinkable water, and good food growing areas. Name any civilization that is a dust choke remnant, an archaeological treasure trove, yeah. and they collapsed because they ran out of water. So that, that's a big issue for us to face. Now, that's not to say that you can't have low-maintenance verges. You can. Um, you can have whatever style that you want. And I think what's going to happen increasingly into the future, and it's already happening to a degree, there are groups like the Volunteer Task Force. So they're a group that go around and they set up water-wise verges for low-income or aged people, and then they manage those verges. Now, gardening, this is the other thing that links in with all of this, one of the most important ways for people to improve their mental health, to reclaim some balance in their life, is gardening. So, the I idea. Agree. Of- I think it's a fantastic pastime. My grandma's 91, and she still manages a 700 square meter block, mm. a four by two, and she's out. You know how she keeps herself fit? She's out in the garden mm. every day. And, and so the idea of maintenance and gardens should be really seen as this is one of my strategies for healing myself, for getting my balance right. You know, we know there's so much science coming out now that one of the greatest things you can do for your mental health is to be out in the garden. When you start to dig in the garden and weeding and all those things you release from the soil, they're called mycobacterium vaccinae. It's one of the famous bacteria that's released from the soil. It triggers serotonin release in your brain, which is the feel good. Yeah, it's one of the feel good hormones in your body. So that's why gardeners often feel relaxed and happier after gardening. So I say to people, think of it from a different perspective. Don't think that, oh my God, I have to maintain a garden. Think that gives me a beautiful opportunity to disconnect from my busy life, staring at screens, constantly having to worry about things and get back into doing something more mindful, repetitive, which is giving you that connection back to nature. What relationship do you see between uh, trees and different layering of plants, mm. I guess. So we've spoken about that the low-lying mm. stuff, the natives. Yep. Uh, but a lot of councils are also pushing, mm. especially in an arbitrary nature, which I 
struggle with in urban infill because it really can kill the just the planning side of urban infill the requirement for large trees mm. in in you know 180 square meter units where you can just fit a three by two triplex mm. suddenly now the city of bayswater you need a tree mm. Where are you going to put that tree? Okay, and again, my old adage, and I'll, do you remember what I said about my get-out-of-jail caveat? Yeah. Right plants in the right yep. place for the right reasons. So you mentioned big tree, and that's the classic thing. From a, from a crude perspective, if you're not a landscaper, we assume in our head a tree is a beautiful tuet or a towering lemon-scented gum, da-da-da. Mm. And I love those trees, and if you have the space, knock your socks off, put them in. Liquid amber? liquid amber so they're big trees so the reality is that there are lots of different trees in fact in wa we are home to so many small trees they're called mallee mallee which everyone has famously heard of they're native eucalypts that grow and it means small multi-stem tree when you have tough environments like ours in in many areas trees just don't grow big so the point i'm trying to make is that there are so many exciting opportunities to integrate trees into landscapes in a way that we just never had considered before i stopped and took some photos of a four unit development in um, Fremantle on Carrington Street and it blew me away so this is four beautiful units and they had espalier do you know what espalier is so when you see a grapevine you know a vineyard and they train and this is not good for radio but I'm I'm basically simulating (laughs) spreading your hands out that's right (laughs) right, and they put them onto wire and they grow the trees or a grapevine would just be a tangled mess if it was allowed to. So they train the the vines to grow along these wires. It means it's much easier to pick the grapes and to manage and it lifts the productivity. Yep. Are you using it like lattice? Yeah. Yep. So, so we can now do that with eucalypts. I've seen a silver princess grown as an espaliered tree. So it allows you to have the driveway. It allows you to have a narrow planting going that way rather than spreading out. Mm. So suddenly, it's not that we can't have trees. We just need to think differently and well, get good examples. with the planning offices because what right now what we have and what a lot of our clients are dealing with in more and more councils is this arbitrary uh, tree growth zones and they need mm. to be yeah. you know deep soil zone they call soil, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah but even yeah. just like a square you know a radius of two or four meters per lot for a tree yeah and you just think geez if if we lose those square meters and they can't overhang into a common property what's why why can't they do that no it's called shade right all these mm. different things and you want what is going on here because it seems like these uh and again these arbitrary uh, movements in the green space have been pushed onto planning officers who don't have the mm. background to actually understand what they're implementing mm. who then put that on developers and it kills developments surely there is again there can be a much more much more impressive uh, level of education going through the councils and the planning officers to mm. how we can uh, not just have arbitrary uh, rules about the square meterage that needs to be, but more about the application and having considered landscaping plans from mm. arborists so that mm. it isn't one fast rule, but more every development must have a landscaping plan that, that provides for these mm. uh, criteria or these outcomes, but it doesn't have to be so arbitrary. Doing a lot of work in this space, there are developers who try and duck and weave and dodge oh, of course everything. They do. And, and they you always build, have that. And they build appalling developments. My niece was living at one where it was five units, charcoal grey paving, and anywhere where there was any chance to put plants, they just put horrible, just cut out sections Sucking. of artificial turf. No, oh, just no. artificial turf. It wow. was appalling and yep. it was a hideous hot box imagine 
you having a young kid growing up in that environment. And we now know that one of the most important indicators of whether a child is going to be grow up to be resilient, to have good cognitive development, to be physically fit, to be balanced, one of the, one of the fundamental ingredients to make sure your kid has the best start in life is access to nature. So that developer building this place where there was every effort made to get rid of nature, I think I think it's illegal. That that you know, well, it's happened a lot, right? And and I think we're learning those lessons, and that's why that it's starting to infiltrate into planning policies. The city, you know, town of Vic Park, City of Bayswater, yes. City of Joondalup, yep. all of them are starting to have these greener tree policies. That's right. Um, because what's happened, the worst case scenario is City of Stirling, where they just blanket R forty all the suburbs yes. around Balga, Westminster, yep. Nolamara, and it's just concrete jungle yep. now. There isn't a tree in sight. I agree. And so you're right. And, and and so there needs to be some nuance. And, you know, one of the things I dream of being able to do is to have these great examples. And I mentioned one of them just to you now with the espaliered silver princess. Get those examples out there so developers can see them. So the planners know about and them. And planners can suggest them. Yep, absolutely. So we're, it's at the early stages. But I I passionately support the, the attempts by planning and councils deep root zone policy was because developers were doing exactly that. They were told you need to have public open space and they just said, oh, we'll put artificial turf. So that was completely, I think, pretty immoral. It was just saying we know that we're- it's money first. That's right. And and so I get where the councils are coming from, but it's very early in the stage and they do need to be having a lot more nuance. Like anything in life, if we want to be able to change the way people do things, we have to give them good examples. Mm. People will follow what is seen as the tradition. And we need to debunk this idea that a big tree. So again, it's the right plant in the right place for the right reasons. And so, you know, there are lots of examples of beautiful trees. So I have a long driveway at my place and there is only about 10 species that I could come up with that will grow this close to a fence and will grow to about 15 metres high. Mm. Now, that's not, a, that's not a large number of plants. You think of the thousands of plants. But again, when you do the research, the right plant in the right place for the right reasons. And I put those along my western boundary so that when the sun comes in the afternoon, I'm shading the house. And that sort of links into the next section we were going to be talking about. But there are many, many reasons why having good trees and landscapes is very important. Talking on a development space here, it's also in the, contrary to a, a lot of front-end numbers, popular belief, it's in the interest of the developer to to develop green, to over-landscape, mm. because there is a very strong correlation between fantastic landscaping yeah, yeah. and profit. Absolutely. The, the, the least desirable developments are yeah. the concrete jungles. And we often say in our workshops, where are, they, where are the great exclusive suburbs anywhere in Australia? And if we pick WA, where are all those aspirational suburbs? We oh. call them the leafy green they suburbs. Are. Yeah, we always say they are they're they're tree-lined leafy. streets, That's right. the liquid ambers of That's Applecross. Right. That's right. You go into you know, uh, Jutland Parade and mm. you'll see these beautiful towering trees. Now, that's another very important point about trees and landscapes is that we need to think of them as green infrastructure. So in other words, no one has a problem with managing infrastructure. So when we see road crews doing up the, the Quinana Freeway at night, we go, yep, yeah, we need to manage that infrastructure. We accept that there's large amounts of money needs to go to maintain bridges and roads, etc. Well, when you call trees green infrastructure, 
the hope is that people see it as another critical part of infrastructure, but just like any other man-made infrastructure, it needs to be carefully managed. So I often use the analogy when you drive down Fraser Avenue in Kings Park, probably the most famous avenue leading up to Fraser's. Very beautiful trees there. And each one of those trees has been systematically managed since they were established in about 1920. And there is a file, just like you with your doctor, knowing all of your ailments and history, there is a file for each one of those trees and an arborist has been managing each one. of He probably has a name for each of them. The point I'm trying to make is that when you have beautiful trees and landscapes, they need to be managed by an arborist and those people will understand how to get the best out of those trees to keep them strong, vigorous and healthy and an extraordinary and beautiful asset on that landscape. Mate, what a fantastic introduction. Mm. Thank you very much, Chris Ferreira. Uh, we'll uh, definitely be talking very soon. Uh, I think our next episode will be top tips on how to uh, essentially uh, provide ourselves with an energy-efficient, cost-efficient uh, development. Beautiful. Thanks, Thank Chris. you, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!